Games are so much more than, well, games. They're complex, engaging, exciting artifacts that play a significant role in society, education, and beyond. That's why we founded Board Game Academics earlier this year. As a group of tabletop gamers and academic professionals, our mission is to combine research and gaming in novel ways that benefit academia and the tabletop industry. We're doing this by focusing on the historical, cultural, and systemic exploration of games as they relate to complex themes like race, gender, nationality, ability, sexuality, and class. To present and celebrate the work of the researchers who have submitted their papers to Board Game Academics, we are holding an inaugural conference on August 2nd. If you're attending Gen Con Trade Day, join us at 2 p.m. on August 2nd. If you're not, registration is now open for the virtual conference taking place on the same day. Register today and discover the exciting, creative, and thoughtful approaches to gaming that are encouraging meaningful discourse between researchers, teachers, and gamers. Use the discount code PODCAST on our website, boardgameacademics.com, when registering to receive the student rate. Again, that discount code is PODCAST, www.boardgameacademics.com. We look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. This is episode 431, Board Game Academic Conference Preview 2023. (laughs) We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, friends, we are back. And for this special episode, since so many of you have asked, we are talking about some of the most cutting edge research happening out there in board gaming, tabletop gaming, role play gaming. And we wanted to give you a sense, a perspective, a review, a reflection, just a bit of a preview about what's coming up on our big board game academics convention at Gen Con 2023. Yeah, no, it's coming up. We're excited. Um, we are in the midst of the deep, deep planning. Uh, but conference space is set. We've got all of our speakers lined up. We've got all of their materials in. We're excited. It's, it's coming. It's happening um, on August 2nd. So if you haven't yet, make sure, hopefully you heard the ad at the beginning of the show. But if you haven't yet, sign up, uh, boardgameacademics.com. You can register for the virtual conference. Uh, if you use the code um, that's in the ad at the beginning, you can get a discount on that as well. And you will get access to all of those presentations, as well as the Discord server that Jen is running for us with lots of activities and vendors and cool stuff going on there as well. So it's a whole thing. We're having a lot of fun with it. Um, and this is only part one, too, because after this, then everybody's going to submit a paper and we're going to release those in a journal that you'll be able to read at the end of the year, um, which will obviously tell you all about at the end of the year but uh right now we're very excited just to get a chance to share this work with you 
yeah, be a part of history, be part of the conversation. And I think, again, one of the reasons why we're doing this special feature is because for many of us out there, we have not been part of an academic conference previously. So we don't understand or, you know, I didn't understand when I first got into this that my participation, Anthony, at these conferences actually matters so feedback, questions, ideas, concerns, insight, my own experiences to the different authors of these researches and papers helps them craft better papers for the journals to come. Absolutely. Yeah, my own research has changed. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say significantly, but it's definitely helped focus it and give it specific directions based on the questions that I get, the concerns that people voice. I've made changes to my own syllabus based on the feedback that people have given me after presenting it. Uh, it's, it's a collaborative process, yeah. if not explicitly, definitely implicitly. So uh, whatever... If you, if you join us, if you participate, if you lob questions at our at our any of our presenters, it will absolutely have an impact. Yeah, I mean, this is for them, so we really want you to be there for them because they've put substantial time and effort into producing great research, great academic thought and scholarship here, and they need your help. So definitely join us on the Discord. We will all be there, so it'll be a good opportunity to talk and chat and get to know each other a little bit and. Have have a lot of fun. So um, Anthony and I will be there and Will and Jen as well. Ruby will be there. We'll have some other special guests throughout. So uh, stay with us because there's more goodness coming up with that. Uh, but Anthony, before we get into that and all that kind of fun goodness, what's happening with us and especially our friends over at Patreon? All right. Uh, so over on Patreon, as usual, you will be able to find um, a whole bunch of bonus content. So we have weekly bonus episodes. Uh, Chris, you just put up your sixth episode of Kicking the Habit just a I've few days ago. So much habits, man. <laughs> so check that out. It is up. I will have a new episode of my Kickstarter postmortem getting very close to the end of the series. Um, that'll be up for you this coming week um, after the fourth and we have question of the week it's posted almost every week um opportunity to participate with that and our discord channel as well where people are discussing the games they're playing and the purchasing decisions they're thinking of making um and just what the weather's like outside which is more interesting than it should be um <laughs> with the world we live in uh so lots of good stuff in there check it out uh you can back as at low as a two dollar level and you'll have access to a lot of these things yeah, it makes a big difference and it supports the podcast and helps us produce each and every week. So, again, thank all our Patreon backers for backing us and thanks everybody else for reviewing, sharing, supporting and just listening. It means the world to us. Thank you so much. All right, Anthony. So that's what's going on with us. Let's go on with our friends out there. What's our question of the week? Question of the week this week. Uh, simple enough. We ask people for their hot takes. What? what are your, what's your hottest take on board games? Ooh. Uh, I, I Honestly, I thought when we posted this, we were going to get a bunch of people being like, this game sucks, and this game sucks. Nah, not our everybody people. likes this game, and this game sucks, too. Because <laughs> if you go into most Facebook groups, that's all it is. It's people true. saying how much a game sucks that everybody else likes. Um, but but our listeners are not like that. And They're you're not. All, you're all wonderful. Um, even even a couple of the answers that were like this game sucks gave reasonable backing for why they think this game sucks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're going to start on the Patreon like we always do. Tim says, board game addicts uh -huh. like me with large collections still like to focus on replayability. 
Yes. We should stop deluding ourselves. Games that require multiple plays to see their true beauty potential get passed over in favor of those that shine in the first one or two plays. Absolutely. Even games we like rarely get more than five plays before we move on to the next hotness. I think the messaging to designers and publishers should be honest. Give us a game we will thoroughly enjoy for the first five plays and then balance it according to these expectations. Mm -hmm. It's actually multiple paths to victory that we crave more than replayability. Yes. 100% Tim. You're 100% right on. And I think for a lot of us, I, I don't know about you so much, Anthony, as we, we talked about this for forever, many years, it was always replayability because board games, again, that didn't have apps, but board games always had like endless play, you know, replayability throughout your entire existence, right? As long as the game doesn't get damaged, it's always available, it's always playable. And that was... I think that was the primary reason why I purchased a lot of games. Like I will play this forever. I will play this multiple times. It could be played multiple times in multiple ways. But then as time went on, it was like if you had one or two bad plays or just mediocre plays of the game and something new just got shoved in your face, you were like, am I really going to invest another four or five, six, seven, eight hours into this? Hopefully hoping that it eventually opens up. And I think sometimes, like like Tim's saying here, I think that needs to be in the marketing or in the rule book or somewhere of like this game shines or this game is intended to be played like this, whether it's player count or time at the table or, you know, what the real game experience level of the players is. I think they always want to sell as many pr- products as possible, and I appreciate that. So it's always like, plays with every player count, great. Plays at any skill level, great. You know, from like 12 to 2,000 years old, it's fine. And and then you get to the table, and it's like, ugh. But it turns out it plays best at four or plays best at two. And, you know, you played it at the player count, which was not ideal. And I don't know. Bad times. Bad times. Yeah. Right. Bad times. Yeah. I know. Like, I think everybody in the media gets this question of like, why don't you review more bad games? Why don't we hear bad reviews? Yeah. Why do you love everything? And this is part of why is if we play a bad game, I at least personally don't feel comfortable reviewing it after one play being like, that was a bad play. This game's terrible because I understand this under that some games just need time to warm up right but we play so many games that and most people do you're not gonna power through five six plays of a game till you get it to the point where it's amazing it's just not gonna happen and so the review is almost by omission of like well it's it takes too long to get into um so you hear a good review that means it was something that we were able to play you know three or four times and found amazing without having to dig into it for another 10 hours of our of our lives so I think we've come to terms with that a little bit. Uh, I think everybody needs to, I think Tim is spot on here. Like there are certainly people who are going to play like this, but if you're listening to this podcast, probably not you. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think, yeah, got it. No, no, I was, uh, I, it's, it's a tough one. Cause you do want to feel like you're getting value for your money, but mm-hmm. maybe it's just about how we assess that value. I, I'm thinking of a particular game of mind. It's it's a it's a theme a theme park roller coaster game, and I won't mention specifically which one it is. But uh, you know, a lot of their marketing and a lot of their reach out to the to the media was like, you need to play this six or seven times to see everything and, and see how good the game is. And again, 
I don't blame them. There might be some game design or mechanic in it that really makes sense. But at the same time, it's just like that isn't a reasonable amount of times to have to play a game to really get the game, right? Like, I mean, it shouldn't play that radically different that number of times or you shouldn't have to play it five, six, seven, eight times to feel the game, to get a sense of the game, to just know what it's about. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of games with a lot of cards, so that makes sense. And there's a lot of asymmetrical powers so certainly certain combinations work better or worse but like i think if you do play a lot of games like we do since we play so many games we have such a great context that when it does hit the table if it doesn't hit right i think we know why and i don't think i don't think it's warranted to play other things again with the exception of like different characters different combination different player counts maybe but like you know I think it's a mistake on the publisher's point is what I'm saying. Like you shouldn't say a game plays great from one to five. Like that's very hard to believe or every yeah. game is like 15 minutes per player. Like that's very hard to believe. It's, or everything, it's never true. It's everything's never true. A, everything's <laughs> a gateway game. Everyone can play this. Like that's not yeah. true. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, these are, these are all good points. Um, so. And they're all hot points. Hot, Super yes. hot. Spicy hot. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's move on to Ryan. Um, also on Patreon says, there are just too many games released. As exciting as it is when new games are released, we need to step back and just enjoy what we already have, myself included. I got caught up in all the hype post-Essen and conventions last year and picked up most of the hot games. They are generally good, but very few stuck in my collection. I've come to better appreciate the ones I already love. I do this all the time. Uh, I even did that specifically with Essen last year. Like Woodcraft is a game that I was so excited about because it was so hot. And then I got it revived too, which I read a couple weeks ago and then I got it and I played it. I'm like, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And that's often what happens because there is that element of the hype and it's new and it's exciting and it's different. So we all get excited about it. But as you said, Chris, we play a lot of games. We can look at it pretty quickly and be like, yeah, I get it. I figured it out. I don't want to do it again. This is a game. It's fine. Why did I buy this? Um, it happens to me every convention season. Yeah. I'm not doing it this year. I'm not. He if is. you see me carrying a bunch of games at Gen he Con, is. smack them out of my hands. I'm not <laughs> doing do it. it. <laughs> I mean, there is the cult of the new, and it is marketing. You know, I mean, the great American tradition, right, of, of purchasing things that you do not need to have. So Anthony knows that all too well. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I mean, and again, it's it's the FOMO. It's the belief that you're going to be missing out. Obviously, it's the belief that like the new version of a thing is better. I'll be talking about that in a minute. And like you said, you have a collection. You should play the collection that you have. Now, again, this is we've had previous episodes about this, about collecting games versus playing games, which is a whole other aspect of the hobby to say the least you can collect games like that's certainly a thing um maybe not the best thing but that's certainly a thing so yeah i don't know like yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's you know we we all do it these are all things we all do i think that's why they're hot takes uh (laughs) all right so let's hop over to the discord uh control shift home this is about specific games uh says games like arc nova wingspan and terraforming mars that have huge decks of cards yeah um that you are drawing from where you could get unlucky or very lucky are basically monopoly with cards in chrome yeah 
Yes, you're right. I, I still like them because when they work, they work really well. But 100% I've had games of all of those where you're like, and I just need this one card. And I just, nope, 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 nope. And there's the nope, game. Nope, game over. That sucked. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, um, I think I was listening to a, vid- uh, a video review. Was Tom Vassell was talking about Scarface, uh, which is on one. I think it's Game Found, mm-hmm. and he was saying he really he really enjoyed the game, but there was you know wide swings as far as uh, the, the deck of cards and what came out. So I was just like, I don't mind that, but I mind it at a certain price point because like at it's just anything that has a deck of cards, like a large, like a market, does it come out to win you the game or lose you the game or someone picks it up before the game? And again, I'll talk about that in my, uh, you know, acquisition disorder. A lot of, I mean, that's there. I mean, it's 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 a fa- it's a fair point. It's a tremendously oh, yeah. fair point, especially with games like, as mentioned, Ark Nova and Terraforming Mars. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, those are some of my favorite games, but I actually don't like playing them with full player counts for this reason because the the cards get distributed so much, and there's still such a huge deck. And then, yeah, somebody could get lucky, and you could maybe you could even do fine. But if they get luckier than you, and then suddenly they're throwing a bunch of asteroids at your plants, you're like, okay, cool. Well, you just undid what I did. That's fun. Um, you don't like that. I know that. <laughs> no, and, but all these games play brilliantly at lower player counts, especially because that's less of an issue. So sure. I, and there are ways to mitigate it, but there's no way to like completely solve for it. So no, it just is what it is. You have to know that's in the game and you have to be okay with it. If you don't like that mechanic, don't play these games. <laughs> well, and then the other side with those cards, specifically that example, which I think plays into a lot of games. There's so many games where it's like, this card or this special ability hits every player at the table, mm-hmm. but its value is weakened if there's only one or two other players at the mm-hmm. table. Sure. So, like, you get ten points, but I can hit, you know, five people for two points each. Now, now it's just one. Yeah, yeah. The card decks are certainly, and they get diluted. And I, I've said this in the past. I wish there. I wish publishers were strong or brave enough to actually release an expansion where they were like hey with this expansion just we want you to throw out these cards these cards just don't work in the game like it just doesn't work instead of adding endlessly to a pile and a stack of cards be like hey just pull these out like it just we play tested it since and it's just not fun or again they only play at certain player counts i think um blood rage has a lot of cards that only you know add to the deck when there's certain player counts, right. so it, it keeps the decks fairly uh, regular. Whereas, like you know, we talked about these other games, we're just like cards, <laughs> add it to your game. It's cards. So you're just like, <laughs> I once played two back to back games of Terraforming Mars with one other person, and we still didn't get through the whole deck. We didn't Oof. reshuffle it after the first game. We we played like forty percent of the deck. <laughs> And then 40% of the deck, and there were still like 100 cards left. Oh, my God. That's a silly thing. That's too many cards in the deck. (laughs) Yeah, that was my problem with Grand Orsary Hotel, too. It's like you get a piece of cake, and I get an endgame bonus for 20 points. Just like, (laughs) okay, that's, that's, you know, that's that's how life happens? I don't know. Like, you win. It's, (laughs) It's really hard to mitigate all that. 
and it it's is. tough because it's one of the most fun mechanics to build out it your is. tableau but how do you get the cards for the tableau without it becoming a mess like i think earth tries to fix that by just giving you like 50 cards but then yeah. the ap that comes with that makes that game take forever yeah i mean there's there's levels of calculations and numbers of play testing that just would be astronomical to like properly seed a deck um, or pick the proper cards out for the right experiences. And again, there's always going to be always, there will always be in the history of gaming. There will always be a lucky pull versus a bad pull. Like you will win, you will win and lose games based on that. It just, it just happens. It just is. It's the way the game is. It's not yeah. bad. Cause I mean, like you said, Anthony, I like those opportunities. I'd rather play that than like games like chess where everything is just, you know, on the board. And there's no variability there. Right. Uh, all right. So one more here from friend of the show. Fed says BGG ranking of games is a hot mess of garbage. That heavily skews towards the heavyweight gamer who doesn't really exist in real life. All right. Fed. <laughs> I feel personally attacked by that. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. We wow. want to think we play and like these games. A lot of them are good, but we should get the praise. But many are problematic, ugly and just games that qualify as experiences, not games. Wow. Not mentioning any specific games here, but okay. uh, you know, just broadly speaking, many are people over infatuating their love or simply the peer pressure of liking a game. There needs to be a better ranking system, something that is less subjective. Honestly, if I was a newer gamer, I would think this was the list I should play. And yes, you should, but take it with a grain of salt, if not at all. Yeah, that that's that last sentence, I think, is the most important thing, um, whether you agree with everything or not. If you're a newer gamer and someone's like, go to Board Game Geek and you look at that top 100, there are very few games on that list for you as yes. a new gamer. Yes. Most of those games are games for like people like us who've been gaming for several years. They're big, they're long, they're heavy, they're thematic, they're yes. complicated. Um, I would be surprised if you could pull out more than like 15 or 20 on there that are accessible to anybody. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even think it would, it's even 15 to 20. I would say, I would say five. Yeah, it's... I, like seven wonders might still be on there i don't know (laughs) well like like you talked about this before like the the cognitive load right how many how many different mechanics do you have to you know juggle at the same time i think from a list perspective that is 100 true like that bgg list is great for a lot of reasons and problematic for others but yes i agree like anyone who's getting into board gaming and then goes to find the top 100 which would make perfect sense to do that and then sees, oh, let me get the top five games. Mm. Birmingham, Gloomhaven, Pandemic Legacy. Like, why wouldn't you? They're the best games. They're the highest rated games. Everyone loves them. So many people have played them. And just like, no, that is not. That is that is the worst case scenario for you, my friend. It would be terrible. Yeah, yeah. all five of those games are big, heavy, long lists. Yes. Like, if Brass is the shortest game in your yes. top ten, that's... Yeah not a good sign for new gamers right i love all these games but yeah i don't even play them very much because they're long right it's a lot of stuff um i think the main problem here and we've talked about this a bunch is that the system is designed to cross pollinate the idea of like high rankings based on the percentage of people who ranked it Mm -hmm. so games that don't have as many voters but have a high average rating tend to score better overall which means you get niche games you get things that don't have as many gamers overall that's how brass birmingham is number one it has less than forty thousand votes but the people who vote for it gives it nines and tens well remember uh, twilight struggle was number one forever yeah that's and it still has less than fifty thousand. that game's been out for almost 20 years and it's one of the most complex two-player games ever 
Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Like the the amount, uh, the volume, just in general. Like I don't know. I don't know how you fix that though. Like it's easy for us to all be like, "This sucks," but like, how do you build a better one? I, I don't remember, know. you know, I had a, I had a similar experience. I remember as a kid going to a game store and picking up Axis and Allies because it looked like, again, I was a kid, right? And it looked like a bunch of army soldiers, and it looked like Risk. Right. And then just opening and going through the game and not being able to play it. And even though it was my age, at least as far as the box is concerned, and just be like, what is this? Like, right. are you like, it's a different way of thinking. The one thing I will say, and I hate to say it, but a long time ago, Anthony, I don't know if you remember, we did this feature. We we talked about the top selling Amazon games. And I thought that list was very beneficial for first time new gamers because it was it was generated based on the number of people who purchased the games and then their rating of the game right and there was some hobby games in there it wasn't all like monopoly and uno and stuff like that there were actually there were actually real games in there too you know and i thought that was kind of like you do have to go to the public and see what the public is consuming so yeah the the one thing i've done that i think is helpful here if you're a new gamer or know somebody who is don't rank don't sort it by board game rank like basically what you're saying with amazon but yeah. go into the board game geek listing and sort it by number of voters sure so I if agree. you go by yeah. the total number of votes the top 10 is wingspan ticket to ride codename seven wonders duel dominion terraforming mars seven wonders pandemic carcassonne Catan. perfect Perfect. Great Those job. are good entry level games. Like the heaviest game on that list is Terraforming Mars, which yeah, it's a little heavy. But and of those games, only three of them are in the top one hundred. Four of them are in the top one hundred. So the other six are not, and you wouldn't see those if you went by the top one hundred. But they're very very popular. So sure. I'm not saying play the most popular games only, but it might give you a better sense of of where you should start. And I think it goes back to Tim's point about what's a gate. And again, we had this discussion. We did episodes on this. What's a gateway game? Right. Like and again, it goes back to another episode feature we did about children's games being the, the uh, a great gateway game, for, you know, because it a lot of the hobby versions like my first Catan or my first whatever it is. Teach you some of the basic mechanics, right? My first Everdell. Right. That is a great introductory gateway game for people who have not played hobby board games to get invested in hobby board games. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. Well, that's everything that's happening with our friends out there making some hot takes. If you'd like to drop some of your own heat, hit us up and on literally any of the social medias at this point or our patreon.com slash BGA board gamers anonymous dot com, where basically you'll find all of this great content there. Please hit us up. Let us know. Love to hear back from you. All right, Anthony. So that's what's going on with them. Let's talk about what's going on with, with us. And let's talk about our acquisition disorders. All right. So I I didn't have anything like glowingly. I have to talk about this that I'm like following on Kickstarter or anything. But I was going through the Gen Con preview list, which I start doing in July, typically. <laughs> um, and this one popped out at me. It's looking interesting. It's called Freelancers, a crossroad game. It's a new plaid hat game uh-huh. using their crossroad system. Um, and it is... It looks to be like a tongue-in-cheek post-apocalyptic game. So it's it starts with, congratulations, humanity is dead. So that's that's the kind of tone we're going for. Um, 
and so you have a bunch of people kind of acting as freelancers. So you go into ruins, you go out into the wilds, you slay various creatures, you find things, you return them. And so it's kind of designed as like a RPG style party where you're going out and accomplishing these various goals, but within the crossroad system board game system that Plathead has built that takes two hours or three hours instead of, you know, a whole RPG campaign. Um, so it, it builds itself as condensing a fantasy RPG campaign into one night. It's as how you build it. It uses an app. So Uh-oh. take that as you will. Cause some nah. people are not a fan. Um, <laughs> it's a first time designer as well. Okay. Donald Schultz doesn't have any other games, although he has been working for plat hat games for the last three years as a developer and the media director. Um, also, worked on board with life um, RPG podcast. So it has a lot of experience kind of in this space. I don't know what any of that means. The crossroad games have been definitely hit or miss. Like obviously we started with dead of winter. It was brilliant. And then everything after that, it's like, well, it's good if you like this type of thing. Um, but I always like developers and designers who try to take an RPG and boil it down into a three hour experience and make it feel complete. Mm hmm. It doesn't always work is the problem, um, but we've got plaid hat. We've got some really cool looking artwork here and we have a cool sounding system. So um, and then they're bragging about like fully voice industry leading audio, which I think is cool. I think adding audio to any game like we used to play the audio clips for my Mystics when we played that. Yeah. Read the story for us. That was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm interested. I will demo this at Gen Con. Um, and you know, maybe put it on my list for when I get home uh, as something to, to check out. Nice. Freelancers, okay. Yeah, I mean, the crossroad system has always been a good system. Uh, obviously, Dead of Winter is, I guess, is just universally thought of as best. I think was it Gen yeah. Seven did it as well. Am I remembering Gen- that correctly? Yeah, there's Gen Seven, and I think there's one more. I think there was a um, pirate one, wasn't there? A oh, pirate? Forgotten Waters. Yeah, yeah. There was a. Those did not do as well. Um, no, and that one is apparently very good. The problem with it is it came out two months into the pandemic, and it was like a, a game where you needed five or six people to play. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, you really should not have released that game. So, That's right. Um, maybe worth checking out, though, because it seems like it might have been pretty good and we just all missed it. Yeah, and Gen 7 I, I, was a game that was, again, it's more of the sci-fi kind of genre, and I was really excited about that, and then I just... Never, we. I don't think I ever got a chance to play it, and it just dropped like a rock for whatever yeah. reason, and it just never came back. I think I, I saw it at one point. I think I sent it to you. It was like nine dollars. Yeah, and it's just well, rough. That's rough. I feel like it was like because they were like it's it's crossroad system, but we're bringing in some euro mechanics and there's dice rolling and stuff, and it's just like these games are meant. Like I think the system works best with the storytelling and. Mm-hmm. Like the the more thematic elements, like trying to make it more Euro-y, I don't think really worked in that case. Sure. Um, it was also, sounds... I think the initial price was a hundred dollars too. If yeah, it I was super correctly. expensive. And I think it's, that was just now a lot. Thirty five on Amazon if you want it now. <laughs> so. Yeah, and again, it doesn't mean it's, it's a bad game, but it, obviously, you know, maybe a little, a little close, a little, a little too close to the sun. Let's yeah. let's let's say that. Yeah. So. Oh, boy. So speaking of flying a little bit close to the sun, uh, I have a, I don't know, a Greek triumph of their Greek tragedy here. I got Cyclades, uh, Legendary Edition. Uh, join the ultimate evolution of this famous development, territory control, and action board game by Bruno Cathala and Ludovic Mombloch. Uh 
we have talked about Cyclades several times. It's one of my favorite games. Uh, I think at some point, I mean, it's been on. It's been on and or around my top 100 forever. And I think we did one episode where we did Cyclades versus Kemet way back in the day. That had a lot of controversy, a lot of hot takes in there. It yep. is currently on Kickstarter, and there's 39 days to back it. Um, let me give you just the ever so brief just concept of Cyclades in case you've never played before. You were dealing with uh, Greek mythology, and you you play one of the factions trying to take over um, the Greek Isles here. And it's all the mythology that you could ever want from the Greek pantheon in one place. So all the gods are in, in here. All the creatures and all the different heroes are in place. Your job is obviously to defeat everyone, but the way to do so is to be able to build up your particular civilization while benefiting from the military actions that you take throughout the game. And all of those military actions and the building is going to be based on an auction system. So this was the first time, and I'm trying to remember if I've ever seen another game do this, that basically can you take an action is 100% based upon do you have enough cash to, I guess, praise the gods in that case more than anybody else. So that basic fundamental game mechanic was just interesting, new, and dynamic, and it allowed you to have different types of gameplay as far as like how you would build out, if and when you would attack, you know, building up, a, you know, obviously an economy to be able to do so. And it did have at the time, and I think still does, arguably, and we'll, we'll take a look at the campaign here, some of the best art, graphic design and miniatures in tabletop gaming. So I was happy and surprised and fearful that this campaign would be great because I do own, I think, almost all of it. And it had a base game and it had... A couple had a Hades expansion, had a Titans expansion, multiple mini expansions. It had it's had expansions, my friend. It had expansions, and back in the day it was a very expensive game. Not so much now, but so this new version of it gives you a couple of things. It gives you a modular game board setup, which isn't radically new to the expansions from the previous game. I'm kind of a hit and miss on that because when you play troops on the map and you have a modular kind of setup. It, again, I haven't played this version of it, so I can't speak to it, but it can be problematic, right, based on how things lay out in the board. There is something there is something to a set board that, like, has been getting test that way. So, like, that board set makes a lot more sense than, you know, randomly putting tiles together. And now either you're on top of somebody or at a distance from somebody and that hurts you or benefits you. The main part of this campaign is the miniatures. There's more than 165 miniatures in the game, and there's over 30 unique sculpts. They look great. They really do. There's great sculpts in the original game as well, but again, more sculpts. So the game's going to have three play modes. It's going to have an improved two-player mode because, again, when you're bidding back and forth, not so much fun at a two-player game. I never recommend bidding games at a two-player. It just doesn't work well at all. There's also going to be the classic mode, three to five players. And then there's a team play mode where you could play four to six players in teams of two. 
not a bad idea. I mean, I, I, I like those team kind of team up situations. It's a lot of fun. There'll also be six gods instead of the original five. So Hera comes into play and she reinforces your troops during battle. But the other gods primarily are building money, uh, build troops, uh, sailing, attacking, like that other kind of stuff. So all the basic actions that you would need in a troops on the map board is here and available through one of the particular gods. And then they usually have like a lesser power if you don't want that particular action. But primarily you're trying to build metropolis or multiple metropolises, right? You're trying to be build three or four. I'm not sure about this new rule book here, about the, ch- the changes in the game elements here, but it's primarily a building game. It's obviously some fighting throughout, but it's it's not like Hemet where it's just about knocking out your players to get as many tokens as possible. It is about building your own particular civilization and about managing the battles throughout. Um, the artwork here and everything has been done by the original artist, uh, Miguel Coimbra, who did a fantastic job. The miniatures look great. If you're interested in a beautiful looking game, uh, and I guess a bidding system with particular actions and modular maps and everything. This is one of the best games out there. As far as cost is concerned, this is really where the campaign is very interesting. So you can get the base game with all the stretch goals and all the basic miniatures for $100. If you want the miniatures, the basic miniatures, but also get all the special miniatures and all the buildings as far as miniatures are concerned, uh, that's 120 now, here's the twist. What if you you love the game or you want to play the game, but you don't want all the plastic? You could actually do a meeple pledge, which allows you to get meeples and standees instead of plastic. So, again, you're looking at $59. Now, again, um, these are all estimates because we're talking about euros and the dollar translation and what might be by the time you back it and things like that. So give or take as far as that's concerned. So there's a lot of information here. You could take a look at the complete campaign. They did a really good job of laying everything out, all the miniatures, all the cards, all the colors, all the buildings. This is also available for play on Tabletopia. I love that. They also have an additional backing. If you want to back 100 metal coins, it's 30 euros, which I kind of hate because that's a lot of money for coins. Like, seriously, that's a lot of money for coins. Coins do play a big part. I will say that's the one thing since you are bidding so that it actually does have a role. But um, this is a great opportunity to pick up the game if you have not picked it up previously. I don't think I might actually try to play this online. I don't think that you need to own this if you've previously owned the previous game. Uh, Unfortunately, there's no upgrade pack here where you can kind of like get the additional god because I guess there's a lot of rule changes and things like that. A lot of reviews, a lot of previews. Um, check it out if you're interested. It's currently on Kickstarter. That's cool, man. I'm yeah. glad you have this. I'm glad you have this to look at because, <laughs> as 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 you will all recall, if you go back to our Kemet versus Clades episode, not a fan of Clades. <gasps> hot take. Hot take. Hot take. Call hot it. take. Yeah. Now, could I remember why from nine years ago? No. I do not remember why because I haven't played it since. But <laughs> maybe this new the, version, maybe this new version will bring you aboard. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's I don't know. I remember the uh, auction mechanic being very cool and wanting that in more games, and then the actual like board play being less interesting to me. Mm. But that said, it does look very pretty, I, and I love Greek mythology. Like 
it's not no game is ever worth backing for the plastic alone, but they do look very cool. And it's a it's a tried and true system. It's a good game. It's not it's not yeah. like you have to worry like, oh, is this going to be a bad game when I back it? Like you really have to make the decision. It's like, can I pick up a previous version, secondary market, or do I want all the new shiny stuff? And maybe the rule book is somewhat better. I mean, there were some cards, and I mentioned this earlier. There are some cards because again, you had a hero hero deck that was mixing with heroes and mythological creatures so your army could benefit by controlling the kraken um i think in our game in particular i mentioned at the start of the game i said hey there's a pegasus card in here it's really powerful because basically it moves your troops just by using this one card and everyone was like all right I'm like keep an eye out for that and then i think daniel got the card and drew was like I am not happy with this game anymore. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's like, again, deck of cards, the randomness of a deck of cards. Uh, so I will continue to watch this campaign. Maybe I'll play it on Tabletopia. Again, not the biggest fan of that platform, but if it lets me play it and see if it's radically different, I don't know. You can't play with like the actual miniatures, right? Like it's just quasi modeled graphics, supposedly somewhat. Sure. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'll take a look at it. I might back it just because I love Cyclades. But again, but then in, at that point, I would be backing a, a second version of a game. And I've done that in the past. I don't like to do that. <laughs> so if you love this game and you've played this actual version of it or you hate this game and played this version of it, let me know. Because I got a problem here. <laughs> we just talked about this earlier. I got a little FOMO here. I'm like, this is new, right? I should buy this, right? This is the thing I should buy. I like this thing, right? I should buy more of it. I don't know. All right. Well, we'll see. Check, check it with me at the next uh, Patreon-backed Kickstarter podcast where I talk about the 12 newest and greatest games out there and see if I've backed it by then. Hey, everybody. We are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff! when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code. It is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. All right, so that's everything that's happening that we want to get to the table. Let's talk about the games that did hit the table. We'll let everyone know if those games are buying, you should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play and you should sit down and play them. If those games are a dodge and you should avoid them. Or if, in fact, the games are a burn. And that's a hot take, man. Anytime we burn a game, it's a hot take. So, Anthony, what'd you play this week? It's a rare hot take, yeah. It is a rare it's hot take. Too, yep. too much work to play a game enough to know that we want to burn it. Uh, all right, so... I <laughs> I got a chance to play uh, Stranger Things upside down. 
um, with my son. Uh, this is about present we got him for his birthday. Um, and the air quality being apocalyptic again here in the Northeast, <laughs> we were stuck inside for the day. So basically so, the outside was like the upside down is what you're saying. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was a very thematic uh, game session. So my, my son is a big fan of Stranger Things, got into it a lot last year um, following the new season when it came out, watched all of it like multiple times through. And so I was like, oh, this new game, it seems like legit, not like phoned in. It's from Simon. It's designed by Rob Daviau. Looks good, right? Um, I like Stranger Things, but it's not like the theme that I would want in a game, but my son was all about it. So I picked that up and we got a chance to play it. It is a cooperative game. Um, so just very much in the vein of cooperative games and total all all around mechanics and what you're doing. Um, and it's Simon, so you have miniatures. Um, the game comes with miniatures for all of the main cast. So you have all four um, of the kids plus... Um, we have 11 and then Hopper and, um, Will's mom, uh, you get a Demogorgon, you get two demo dogs. So <laughs> okay. pretty good, pretty good for miniatures. They look okay. They're, they're not the best Simon's ever done, but for like retail quality, uh, and the game was like 50 bucks. It's not terrible either. Um, the game itself though, when you, when you open it up, there are two sides to the board. So you can play season one or you can play season two. So they've given you scenarios based on the seasons of the show. Uh, So season one, obviously you're trying to find Will. He's lost somewhere. You're trying to find him. He's in the upside down. And season two, once again, you're trying to save Will, but in a different form. So uh, there's been talk of like potentially in the future, there'll be seasons three and four released like as an expansion. I don't know how serious they are about that. I guess it depends on how well this sells. Uh, But it seems like a good format for it. At least you could have multiple expansions here. And then you have a expandable game. I think it's a little bit of a shame. You just get the two out of the box and I'll get into why in a minute. Mechanically speaking, the game is interesting. It's not super complicated, but it's not quite as simple as like your basic off the store shelf cooperative games. So you have each everybody, everybody has a character uh, represented by a miniature that's on the board somewhere. Um, you'll have a hand of action cards. These action cards just have numbers on them and sometimes a symbol or two. Um, when you take your turn, you move your character to one of the spaces on the board. You can always move one. If you play one of the action cards, you add the number on that card to your movement to go further. And then you take the action of the location you landed on. If there are these little tokens in a stack at your location, you first have to overcome the tokens. Um, you do this by playing a number of action cards out, adding any modifiers that you have uh, from uh, allies or item cards you've picked up, and then flipping over that stack and adding up that total. And that's basically it. That's most of the mechanics of the game. It's just going to locations to take actions, facing off against this token stack and seeing if you win or not. If you lose, you gain fear. Fear is like a madness track in a Cthulhu game. If you max out your fear, you lose. Everybody loses. It's cooperative. Um, there are locations you can go to calm down and reduce your fear. Uh, but that that's kind of the thing you have to manage. And it can go up really fast because there are big cards that kind of come out in between people's turns. Um, so you have all these different locations above in Hawkins. And there's also locations in the upside down. There's four down there. Those ones are a little more complicated. There's three of them there where you have to clear stacks to save Will in season one. Um, the Demogorgon also starts down there and you have to fight that. Um, fighting the Demogorgon, once again, it's still based on those stacks. So however many stacks there are on the side of the board, 
that's the strength of the Demogorgon. So in season one, it could be as high as eight, which is almost unbeatable unless you have a bunch of modifiers. But you can also clear some of those stacks by doing various things and then make the Demogorgon weaker and you can have a better chance of beating it. Um, the general flow of the game is very smooth. Like your turns are very quick. You move, take an action, refill your hand, and then you draw a scene card. The scene cards are all different events that do things. So there are patrols out there that might move closer to you. There's things that might cause the Demogorgon to move. There's things that could give you fear. There's things that'll put tokens back on the board. Some they'll take them off the board. Um, so there are these various events that you have to try to manage. And there aren't that many in the deck. So you, as you play the game a few times, you kind of get a sense of like, well, there's this and it hasn't come out yet. Um, there is a card in that deck that will cycle the whole thing. So it'll say shuffle the whole deck. So you shuffle it all back together. Um, but you do have to be careful. Like if you're in the upside down, there are a few cards that can really hurt you if you're down there. Right. So you have to be careful if not to just hang out in the upside down because you start drawing these cards and they're going to knock you out. Um, the action deck, once you cycle all the way through it, you will move 11 along this this track that she's on. And then that will cause you to draw more scene cards. So if you move to act two, you're drawing a minimum of two scene cards. There are modifiers that can make that even more. The more of these you draw, the harder the game gets. So you have to manage that as well and not go too crazy, not spend too many action cards because that cycles the game quickly. To win the game, you have to save Will. Pretty straightforward. So you're clearing these stacks in the upside down. Um, to lose the game, either one person maxes out on fear or you get to the end of the act track and you are about to recycle the deck and you can't. So um, basic pandemic level type of loss conditions. Um the game is pretty quick. It takes an hour. The box is an hour. I feel like it takes an hour. Um, it's a little difficult, but not impossible. Um, part of that is the RNG just of the token stacks. Now, there are some mechanics to start learning what's in the token stack. And when you lose against the token stack, you get to remove one of the tokens from it. So you make certain locations easier. Um, but like any cooperative game, it's really an efficiency model right you're trying to do things as efficiently as possible manage the things on the board but ultimately achieve the objectives without taking too long to get there because there's a timer right so i would say it's a good wait for if you have kids who like this show or if you like this show it's not spirit island right it's not it's not going to give you that kind of a challenge or extensive um like if you're a gamer gamer this is not a big complicated game it's definitely targeting like you know preteen teen i think complexity level but i think that's probably right considering the audience and considering where they're selling it and considering the price point the main thing that i, I would have concern with is it is random obviously you could go in and just get annihilated like any good um cooperative game there's nothing in here to mitigate things like alpha gaming um so people can take over as in any good co-op uh, and you just have the two seasons. And I feel like after a day, even, we might be close to played out on season one. I'm dabbled with season two. So I could see this game kind of getting played out pretty quickly. And then we're going back to Tim's question about replayability. But for a cooperative game, which those tend to get played a little bit more, um, and for an IP game that tends to stay on the shelf for people who like it, I, I feel like it might wear thin quicker than other co-ops. I haven't gotten there yet though so that's not really a full critique that's just my impression based on initial plays um it's a play i like it my son loved it so i think he's very happy he has it um but it's it it looks and feels almost like something funko would put out 
and maybe Simon's trying to get into that market of like that forty to fifty dollar big box store IP game, and this is exactly that, and it's fine. It felt like horrified kind of level of of cooperative play, which is good. No, that's great, and it's good that. And we've seen this more and more over the last couple of years, obviously from Prosperous Hall, but it's good to see that so many of these IPs are actually getting real gameplay and not just, hey, it's the Monopoly version of a thing. Yeah, pretty much, right? And like, I'm sure there are people who will play this and be like, wow, that's a really like bare bones basic co-op. And it kind of is, but I like that they took the effort to give you different versions of the game based on the seasons they didn't try to boil the whole show down into one game they're like no season one is its own thing you have your own objective season two is different you have different enemies and different objectives if they if we get seasons three and four they'll be very different four especially be very different so i think that's pretty cool um i think davio is the right person to do that and he has a lot of experience with mass market games from when he worked at hasbro so it works on all those levels and just especially how much my son liked it and he wanted to play it again right away. I think that's, he is the target market for this sure. and it was spot on. Is this so. similar weight to the Harry Potter? It seems like a Harry Potter thing, right? Cause each one of those has like, it's based on a, it's based on a movie, right? Yeah. Harry Potter is an easier game for sure. Okay. Um, this, this, it has a, a little more rules than you'd expect for how light it ends up being. So, like, reading the rulebook took a bit of time, and we did have to reference it a few times. Usually with these, like, big box store level games, um, I don't have to do that as much. But this one, I don't want to say it's fiddly, but there are definitely, like, a lot of little details you have to keep track of. Um, so, like, I asked my, I asked him to set the game up because I was going to pick up his sister, and he couldn't get through the setup because it wasn't super clear what to do. Um, there's a lot of different variables there. So, it's more complex. It's not heavy by any means. It's a light medium game, but it's it's more than Harry Potter. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, I have an oldie but a goodie since we were talking about this at the start of the episode about jumping back to the old original stuff that is so very good. This is The Duke. Uh, for me, as somebody who grew up playing chess and, to be honest, was kind of somewhat bored by it. Now, that's to say chess is not a great game. It's a fantastic game. It's all the things that chess is. But for me, as a, I guess, gamer, board gamer, Euro gamer, or again, like we were talking about earlier, looking for a little variability, different ways to win, so to speak, I was looking for a game that had that kind of complexity, but at the same time, also had that easy to learn, hard to master kind of situation with, again, a little bit of a twist about what's next. So the Duke is all about drawing, placing, then moving, and then flipping these really chunky wood tiles on a very small board. So it's not the grand chessboard with all the grand pieces. you got these nice squared tiles. And at the start of the game, you're putting out your Duke, and you're putting out your supporters. I think the two footmen go out there in order to support – and you can place them anywhere towards the bottom, on the bottom of the map, and then you're good to go. So the two footmen are protecting your duke, and then each turn a player chooses to either move one of those tiles, and this is the fun part. The tiles themselves, if you've never played the duke before, has the actual move printed on the tile. 
So you don't have to go back and say, hey, how does this thing do a thing? It's actually there. Just some symbology for the more complex tiles. But once you play the game once or twice, you get everything pretty much down. And again, everything's on the tile. You move the tile based upon the the description on the little on the little uh, tile, and then it flips. And when it flips, you have a whole different set of moves. So it moves straight. You flip it over. Now it moves diagonal. And again, that's pretty cool because now you have to think ahead in advance as far as if I want to be able to take a certain other piece, there is different sets of operations that happen throughout. So it's not as straightforward as chess or a number of other games where, you know, it's just going, it's going to be this thing. No, it can be two things, which is great. Uh, so you keep playing this using your special ability. Uh, there's a lot, as I mentioned, special moves. So you can jump, you can slide, you could strike other players. And then as you move on and, and, you know, and try to take out the players, the other player can also move again, two player game only, or they can select a new tile from the bag and put that out on the board and next to your Duke. And now you have a new, you know, supporter, attacker, defender, follower. And again, it's randomized based upon what's in your bag. Now you both have the same bags again, unless it's some, some special kind of expansion. So it radically changes the game up. It's a little six by six grid and moving and flipping and pulling and placing allows for a lot of complexity in a very small game and, and it's just a very short amount of time. It's a lot of fun. It can go long as if you do play defensive, but you got to really play strong. And again, it's a lot of fun. So um, I really enjoyed the Duke. I was lucky enough to pick up a copy way back when. And getting to the table is always a lot of fun. Uh, there is a number of expansions that go along with this game as well. So you can really diversify the bag. And there's a lot of different game modules that you can play with. So a lot of different ways to play this. There's a Viking version of it. Uh, a lot of cool stuff. And definitely under the radar, unfortunately, because this game should be one of the better games on like the top 100. I don't I don't think it's on there, but it definitely deserves to be somewhere up there. So, Anthony, that is the Duke. It's a buy. It's a solid, solid buy. I love this game. Yeah, I have at least two versions of it. I picked up the Lord's Legacy a couple years ago. Mm. Um, one of my favorite abstract games and definitely a buy for me too. It's a weird one because I feel like Catalyst Games put it out. It's not the kind of game they generally put out and then maybe that's part yeah. of why it hasn't gotten as big as it is because or should be because it's not the type of thing that they would normally market. Um, they're usually more in the miniature space. So it's great though. If it's in print, you should go find it. It is right now. You can get the Lord's legacy, um, but it does occasionally go out of print. So if you're interested, go find it. Yeah. It's ranked overall at seven eighty nine, And, and that is not correct. My friends, we talked about, again, we talked earlier about the top 100 being problematic. That is very problematic. Yeah. Uh, this is a game that you could really put with anyone because the rules are right on the, on the tiles. And it's small. It's portable. You can play it anywhere. So, yes, absolutely. High, high recommendation, highest recommendation for the Duke. All right. Let's get on to our feature review. So our feature review this week is we are going to talk about some of the most cutting-edge scholarship that's happening in the tabletop industry. Uh, board Game Academics, myself, Anthony, and our entire editorial board and so many other people have come together to request to review to curate and to present to everyone out there 
some of the best stuff that's happening in tabletop gaming that allows us to have a different perspective or expanded perspective of what tabletop gaming really is in our world. So, Anthony, tell us about all of Board Game Academics and what we're doing and why we're doing it and what we're bringing to the table here this week. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Board Game Academics, we're going to have our premier conference um, in a month, uh, like a month, a month from yesterday if you're listening to this today it comes out uh and you know our goal is multifold i mean first and foremost we're we're running this conference right we want to share the research that people have shared with us and that we'll be publishing mm -hmm. in the future so scholarship and research into the role of modern tabletop board games right but we also want to discuss like how that can affect us in society right this is not meant to be strictly behind high ivied walls research done in isolation like what does this mean how does this impact people how can it be used what what about this research can be tangible and applicable right and that that was part of what our editorial board looked at in accepting presentations is what what does this actually mean how can it be used what's the tangible factor here um and so i I think that's what sets it apart it's not just academics for the sake of academics it's not just research for the sake of research it's looking at how can games make the world a better more interesting place through an academic lens um Mm -hmm. and so that's what our presenters will be sharing with you in a month yeah and it's just another way to bring gamers to the table because i think that's what we all need to be doing to bring as many people as possible to the table from as many diverse communities and especially communities that have not been properly supported or reached out to or are underrepresented in some way they deserve and they need to be at the table to enrich all of our experience. So uh, hopefully this will be another avenue to do that. So next time when you go to a meetup or a game group or a convention, people are fighting to get to a table to play a game with you. Yeah. So, Anthony, what do we have as far as our uh, presenters? Right. So, as I mentioned, we have selected, um, we selected actually almost two months ago, uh, the individuals who submitted their abstracts um, earlier this year. And they'll be presenting in two waves. Um, So, we'll be presenting live at Gen Con. So, if you're able to join us at Trade Day, there'll be six presenters sharing their research during our live presentation. Um, We also have another six presenters who will be presenting later in the day uh, online, virtually, who weren't able to join us at Gen Con. So um, there's not really any difference between the the presentations other than those who are there with us and those who are presenting virtually. So if you join us virtually, you'll have access to all of this. If you join us in person, um, you will also have access to all of this. You can watch it recorded later or go back to your hotel room and watch it on your laptop. Um, So in person, uh, starting at two o'clock on August 2nd, um, we will have kind of a bit of a kickoff. We'll have a keynote and just share with everybody why we're there. And then leading us off will be Courtney Trickyart, Tricorici, you put me with all the names, and that's not fair. Because... Someone's got to fall on the sword, and it's been me way too many times. Uh, yeah. So apologies to all of our presenters if I mispronounce your name. I have not had a chance to practice yet because we have a month left. <laughs> um, but Courtney and um, Dr. David Jalahas, um, Courtney will be presenting the research um, that they did on Escape to Fun, a usability study of virtual escape rooms for neurodivergent gamers. So... This will be about escape rooms in general and their role kind of as, as in a pop culture phenomenon, um, but also kind of looking at how 
the virtual landscape can foster satisfactory game experiences as they would in like a physical escape room. So building kind of an online virtual ones and what that looks like um, in the context of neurodivergence. So mm-hmm. uh, it's just an interesting take on a very, very popular activity that I think we don't touch on as often, even out, even with the escape room games that are out there. Sure. Um, but escape rooms, there's thousands of them, thousands of them yes. around the country and people love these things. And what does that look like? How does it, transition how do different people experience them um courtney will be looking at that yeah no i mean it's a it's it's an underplayed underrepresented under supported underreported phenomenon that just like hey it's a board game that exploded into a store you know or a storefront at your local mall and now you can go in and play a game a puzzle a dexterity situation and that's wonderful and wondrous And at the same time, it's good to take a look at and remember, like, we want everyone to join us to support all the different populations that can join us in those situations. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah, it'll be be wonderful. Um, Next up after Courtney, we have Susan Asbury, Assistant Professor of History at Middle Georgia State University, um, who will be presenting on Remember the Maine, the Spanish-American War Invades the Parlor. So... Uh, we'll be looking at the historical role of um, tabletop board games, puzzles, and card games, specifically looking at how they've reenacted wars and global conflicts before World War II. Um, so the Spanish-American War, the Philippine-American War, um, and like what that looked like, specifically at the turn of the century, the types of games and puzzles that were built that kind of reenacted these battles. Um and then what that analysis looks like of, of games from that time. So uh, always interesting to see kind of through a historical lens what yeah. what games are doing and how they did it, especially at the time, you know, looking back 125 years later. Um, so very much looking forward to this one. Yes, and I, I love the idea about we we so we we're we're not so critical about we we believe we have information we have knowledge and we have experience but we always don't we we rarely think about where that comes from and so much of our knowledge comes from places like games and I think that's a, an opportunity to you know take a critical lens and see how that has skewed whether positively or negatively, typically mostly negatively, uh, our perspective of other cultures and regions and conflicts and and how the propaganda had played into a lot of those games that even we play today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Uh, third up on during our trade day presentation, we have Sean M. Thorgerson, um, who's a doctoral student at St. John's University. Uh, Sean's going to be presenting on the research they've done on analog based game learning in classrooms. So um, we, we have several people talking about just the use of games in the classroom and specifically like what role they can play. So uh, through design-based research, exploration of how thinking manifests during gameplay um, are just some of the topics that um, Sean has mentioned in, in their abstract. Uh, so lots of different details here. Um, including a qualitative study um, interviewing middle and high school teachers and how they've utilized some of these analog game-based learning opportunities. Um, As somebody who uses games in the classroom, I'm always fascinated uh, by this type of research and seeing 
how it plays out at different levels in particular. Sure. And, and from my experience working in career development for over 20 years, the idea of simulation learning that, you know, that kind of base learning system is so incredibly valuable for students because, you know, as you get older, it's easier and easier to abstract things and it's easier just, you know, to have notes and conversations about things. But to actually on some level, even though it is certainly still abstracted, to narratively engage and to actually move pieces and consider problems and take a look at the artwork and the graphic design and just to kind of be enveloped by that is taking education again i would say to the next level it's been done in a lot of ways but gaming does it best in so many ways because of the accessibility that gaming provides and yeah now this is just and you and i think we're talking about this earlier about chat gpt and all the ai stuff that's coming out we're going to need to find a different way to engage with students and help mm-hmm. them learn and a in-person complex experience with other gamers d- does meet that mark. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's so, so fascinating to me. Uh, all right. So next up on our trade day list, we have Tim Bryant, associate professor of English at SUNY Buffalo state university um, presenting on playing without a future. So this is specifically about Dungeons and Dragons and how the game has kind of fallen into a routine in which everything is in a loop, right? The actions taken, the combat style, everything within that game world, players are often doing similar things over and over again. And his argument is that D&D needs to break the stagnant cycle by relinquishing these closed patterns and embracing open dynamics of play. Um, And we'll be kind of delving through how this is done and what that could look like within that very well-established system. Yeah. And again, it's the military-esque idea of every fantasy adventure having to be a, you know, a grind and a slash and grab kind of situation. I mean, we never thought about that before, right? Like, why is it like everyone's going to, everyone's out there to kill all the mythological creatures. Like that's kind of a weird thing. And um, there's certainly other, other ways to benefit from that experience. So yes. Absolutely. Um, Next up we have Christopher Jensen, lecturer at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Um, And they will be presenting on paratextual board games in media studies classrooms. So specifically looking at how board games can be used in popular cultural media studies classrooms to broaden the student's understanding of media as interactive, um, as polyvalent, and as part of convergent systems. So kind of looking at the idea of how a game can be presented as a text, um, which is something that I've worked on myself and found this very interesting. Um, several various examples presented as well. So uh, just another look at the classroom situation, but from a very different perspective. Nice. Yeah, no. Again, very important work. Um, and then closing out on our in-person uh, presentations, we have Alexander Jacoby uh, and their paper, Conquest in Plastic, the Warhammer Miniature and Transmedial Secondary World Extension. Uh, so Jacoby will be looking at Warhammer 40k miniatures um, as a mm-hmm. case example, um, and specifically the ways that the plastic soldiers, monsters, and tanks of the game contributed to it an extended diegesis. Uh, so how this 
intertextual narrative is developed and how story worlds are built within transmedial franchises and transmedial properties, um, in this case, a game. Yeah, absolutely. And again, another perspective that we don't typically think about or look at as far as the games that actually get to our table, why and how they do and and their function at the table um, and what they bring bring to all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. So leading off our virtual presentations um, in the afternoon part of the day, we have Stephanie Hedge with... Um, Writer as character, creating one-pager tabletop role-playing games in the first-year composition classroom. Uh, so this one will um, specifically look at a, uh, an exercise used in a first-year writing classroom to build a one-page tabletop role-playing game um, based on writing a research paper. So gamifying, engageifying, whatever you want to call it, um, this very basic... Uh, task that every college freshman is asked to do multiple times. <laughs> um, I'm actively awaiting this one because I, I have to give this assignment, go write a yes. research paper and they all hate it. And now they all cheat with chat GPT on top of that. So um, <laughs> how do we make that more engaging and interesting and different? Um, I have a colleague recently who's one of his students wrote an RPG as their final project. And I was like, how did they do that? So uh, it's, very cool idea and I, i'm very excited to see how this works yeah no and, and again i think i think i want to point out and we we didn't talk too much about in the last two presentations but a lot of this is content and material that either you've engaged with previously or stuff that you can use in your practice like you were talking about so this session will include assignment sheets samples of students work their experiences and things that you can utilize the previous two papers also talked about horror in board games uh in particular the thing and this war of mine and then obviously talking about miniatures you know like what game we just talked about tons of miniatures in cyclades so like why is you know why is that important for the thematic gameplay that maybe i want to back on kickstarter so these papers have a lot of practical presentations that can actually benefit our purchases and our gameplay so again and our work too which is which is a lot of fun yeah. Uh, all right. Next up, we have Matthew Konus. And again, apology, Matthew, if I'm saying it wrong. Um, I'll get it right before, before the convention. Uh, working at University of Denver and School of Illith Joint Doctoral Program. Um, so Matthew's research is on the chess industry and mm -hmm. kind of the runaway success and surge that was seen following the Queen's Gambit, released in yes. 2020. And how despite that surge of interest... Um, and just quoting from his abstract here in chess worldwide, women remain at best tokenized and more often systematically excluded by the chess industry. Crazy. So just looking at the tokenizing politics of that entire industry, what that looks like. And in light of this discrimination, the industry's repetitive claim that chess is a true meritocracy will be refuted. So that is the goal of, of Matthew's research. No, I love it. And again, this is, again, we talked about earlier about true representation, about having real diversity at the table. And in a lot of small ways, it's, you know, we don't think it's a, we don't experience the problem because we, we come from a place of privilege when we enter that game hall. But, you know, the, some of the things you mentioned, Anthony here as, as pointing out that there's smaller cash prizes, uh, less advertising for these women's events. And that's crazy. It's chess. Like, why Why would that be a thing, right? Like, right. why would everyone consume it heavily as a Netflix special 
but then not support later. They would certainly support later. It's just there is some problematic cultural items that are still diminishing uh, our representation at the table, which, again, is terrible because more people at the table. More. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, next, we have Justin D. Kozner, uh, Dr. Kozner uh, from University of Iowa. will be presenting critical analysis through board games in the humanities classrooms. So this uh, presentation will look at um, theoretical structure for analyzing games as multidimensional texts and a practical guide for bringing them into the classroom. So you'll be looking at two free to access and permissively concise game systems that can fit into an open week of coursework. Um, so just kind of bringing in these different types of experiences and looking at them as a way to um, encourage critical analysis in humanities. Yeah, I think so. And again, a, a large part of this is just in narratively inhabiting um, the people that have been not properly representative. And again, um, you know, the opportunity here to kind of explore different dimensions of who we are as people. So, um, yeah, no, wonderful. Absolutely. Um all right, next up we have Marco Rodriguez, um, who's a doctoral student at Old Dominion University and is a full-time lecturer at the University of Texas at El Paso. Uh, yeah. So uh, Marco will be looking at Too Much Magic, how the popular card game is oversaturating their communities. Um, so looking at how Magic the Gathering historically has been very popular, but has boomed even more so in recent mm. years with the, the pandemic boom of all collectible games. Um and what that's looked like as a result of Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro creating more products and expanding and oversaturating to some degree and the yes. kind of impact that that is having on um, the industry as a whole. So this piece will focus on game studies, theories and players responses through surveys and forums from social media to examine how the community resists the Wizards Hasbro capitalism and consumerist culture and create their own games and products to promote gameplay by breaking financial barriers. Yeah, and I think we've seen this recently, which is like, again, we talked about this earlier when we talked about, you know, the question of the week. It certainly has sucked out the oxygen in the room. And I think you can certainly produce, continue to produce, overproduce products. But it, but there's so much time on the table and there's so much shelf space and there's so much conversation you can have on the thing. Uh, I mean, Lord of the Rings, the card game, the magic version of it is just eating everything up, right? Like just, and that's magic. It's just, it just eats up the whole zeitgeist out there. So it's hard to get anything else to the table. I mean, trying even to get a game to the table these days, uh, it's a rough time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. And then we have Matt Olmsted, who's an associate professor of physics at King's College. And in Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, we'll be looking at how he's used different board games and activities in the classroom to help students better understand physics. So um, kind of looking in a different direction than, like, than the humanities and looking at STEM and how games can be uh, supportive and effective in the classroom. Um, so he's going to discuss specific examples of using games and activities with a focus on students' favorite games implemented in recent years, how to use them while remote, and on what the students found useful about these activities. Um, some examples given in the abstract include Pictomania, Wavelength, Telestrations, Muse, and Medium. Yeah, and again, I think that what's so interesting about this paper here is that when you want to teach games 
or I'm sorry, let me say it the other way. When you want to teach concepts and you utilize games, it doesn't always have to be the specific you know, content. So I want to teach physics. It should be games about physics. No, what about the underlying uh, concepts and mechanics and formulas and thoughts and perspectives that lead to proper understanding of the principles of physics. So I love that idea too, because typically we usually think of things as like one-to-one, right? But there's a lot of other things games can teach us for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And then joining us as well will be um, Eric Zimmerman, uh, who works with um, the NYC's Game Center. NYU's Game Center, um, co-founder of Game Lab, um, founder of Institute of Play, has been very influential just in game studies and, and game design theory as a whole. Um, and he'll be joining us and discussing his new book, The Rules We Break, and presenting some research from that book, uh, specifically about how it can be used practically um, in different situations. Yeah, no, fantastic. Really great to have him as well. And all of these presenters, it's going to be a fantastic time. So we hope that you all join us in person at Trade Day or online. There's obviously information about how to do that at the beginning of the podcast. And again, this is the start of many conversations and many explorations. And if anyone out there is interested or has an idea or concept or wants to contribute to the conversation and ongoing dialogue, definitely hit us up. Definitely hit these people up at the upcoming convention. And, you know, it's just going to get more people to the table, which is the best thing possible. Absolutely. All right, everyone. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll all save you a seat at the table. Take care, everyone. Bye. See ya.